great pleasure to welcome you to this Mitchell Institute conversation, part of a podcast series created at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice here at Queen's University Belfast. I'm Richard English, Director of the Institute, and for today's conversation, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Professor Michal Omanian from the School of Arts, English and Languages here at Queen's University Belfast and an Associate Fellow of the Mitchell Institute. Professor Omanian's research interests include language and identity in Ireland and Scotland, language and conflict, early modern Irish and Scottish language and literature, and much else. Michal, it's great to have you with us today. I wonder if we could start with you telling listeners a little bit about the overall trajectory of your research work so that they can get a sense of your engagements and the range of your expertise. Thanks very much, Richard, and delighted to talk to you. Um, I came here in 1987 to join the newly founded Northern Ireland Plistian Project uh, as a researcher, and this was a big development at the time. Uh, it was an opportunity for five people in my discipline to get uh, work as researchers in prestigious university um, and uh, the idea was I think uh, that uh, powers that be wished to support the Irish language in a way that was not controversial at that time uh, and I believe they were right in that uh, people are attached to the place they come from irrespective of its linguistic origin or what it may mean uh, and uh, it was appreciated that uh, we could explore something involving the Irish language in, in, a, in a way that was safe and not controversial at that time. So that brought me here in 1987. Uh, the Northern Ireland Project, Project has been on the go since, uh, uh, funded for most of that period with a few years without funding, but it's kept going uh, because there's a lot of work to do. Uh, work of a similar kind has been done in England, uh, in, of course, the Irish Republic, Scotland and other places. Uh, and uh, because anything can be a source uh, for that type of research, anything that's been written over, over, over a period of time. And in the Irish case, you're talking about the best part of 1,500 years of written tradition, uh, not to mention English and Latin. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of source material. So it's work that takes a long time and uh, it's pro pro progressing apace. Uh, and I'm still here and I'm now currently its director. So that's what brought me here. Uh, but my linguistic background is in Irish and Celtic studies. And my special interest is in Irish and Scottish Gaelic. So, uh, but I'm interested in both those languages uh, in the contemporary and in the early modern periods in particular. Thanks, Michal. I want to return in a minute to the Place Name Project, of which, as you say, you're now director. Uh, but first, you mentioned something there when you're talking about it in terms of the hope that there could be a non-controversial way of, of looking at some of these issues. Uh, could you say something about language and conflict. It's a vast area, of course, but you've approached it with nuanced expertise. Could you comment on what some of your insights and judgments would be about the ways in which language is involved with the generation or the sustenance or the ending or the legacies of, of political conflict? Well, of course, our political conflict here is, uh, is, uh, uh, is one that's gone on for a very long time. So uh, the first thing I would say to that question is, well, I'm not a great fan of the word politicization of language because everything we do can be political with a small or a large piece. So I'm not, I'm not always sure it's extremely helpful. Uh, but when asked to talk about it, um, it's undoubtedly the case that um, identification on the basis of language was something that engaged, if you like, the powers that be in, in, in the context of uh, the English colony uh, very early on. So our earlier source for um, 
language as an issue uh, at the Statutes of Kilkenny in 1366. So we're going back quite, quite a long way. Uh, and I often say that to students because I think it's helpful for us in this place, in Northern Ireland, to get off that hook because this issue of language and conflict didn't start here. It's much older than the creation of the Irish Republic or Northern Ireland. And also it's not unique to our situation, it's universal. Uh, so we have issues around language and conflict all over the world in all sorts of contexts, uh, temporarily and spatially. So it, it would be good for us perhaps to bear that in mind sometimes because I think we can be a bit essentialist about it here. Um, uh, so that's the first thing I would say. So yes, uh, language has been embroiled in conflict here for a very long time, but again, to refer to that first instance, that was directed at the descendants of the first English in Ireland. It wasn't descend, uh, directed at all at the Irish, ethnic Irish, if I can call them that, in that period. Uh, and it was a concern around degeneracy uh, and the fact that bilingualism, English and Irish, might lead ultimately to monolingualism in Irish. Uh, and there was a, a fear that that might lead to a loosening of the connection with the crown. Now, I wouldn't necessarily accept any of that as being necessarily true. Uh, and indeed, more importantly, the pe people themselves in, in various periods uh, didn't feel that that was necessarily true either because things are, of course, much more complicated than that. Uh, so we have language intruding on our conflict here for, for many centuries. Um, at the end of the 16th century, early 17th century, there was a step change, certainly, uh, as um, the Irish were finally de defeated uh, militarily. At least the Gaelic, Gaelic Ireland saw its, uh, saw its end, if you like, its demise, although it may, may not have been entirely clear at that time. But looking back, it was clear that that was a crucial period. Uh, and uh, the linguistic situation changed then because there had been periods of bilingualism which were less uh, uh, bound with, with conflict uh, before that. I mean, there were people who lived, uh, in my view, very happily uh, speaking two languages, despite um, the discourse around that in certain contexts. Uh, the real-life experience on the ground here was that there were people who were bilingual, spoke English and Irish, and there were also, no doubt, people who were monolingual. Uh, but it's in the 17th century that we see a step change. Uh, and, of course, it becomes more complex too because now there's another uh, language added into the mix, and that's Scots. Uh, uh, so in Ulster in particular, that's of great relevance to us here. Um, whether uh, we can really talk in terms of uh, simplistic identification between one language and one ethnicity, uh, I'm not convinced. Uh, there is uh, plenty of evidence to suggest that things were much more complicated. Yes, there can be dom dominant ideologies in, in particular periods. You would have to accept that. Uh, but my understanding is that it's never straightforward and one always gets surprises. So, uh, for example, uh, in the 17th century, uh, there were those who uh, continued to be suspicious of Irish uh, as a language which was most closely associated with Catholic Ireland. Uh, while at the same time there were those in the Anglican tradition uh, being Protestant, uh, perhaps with a small p, but nonetheless Protestant, uh, who believed in the use of the vernacular and felt that things should be no different in Ireland and that, we, uh, that uh, the, the Irish language should be used uh, in dealing with the Irish people. And yes, it was with a view to reform. Uh, there was no hiding that. Uh, but I don't see that there was anything legitimate about that in the Irish context any more than there was in any other context. Uh, so there were always those who, who advocated for uh, a different view of the Irish language and uh, one which you might describe as being less political. Um, and there were even periods where uh, at the very top uh, um, 
the king or the queen of the day also, you know, were prepared to countenance that, that, you know, Irish could be a language of reformation, uh, uh, it could be a language of engagement. Elizabeth I certainly uh, had thoughts in that direction. She was the first to fund a fount for, for, the, for the publication of material in the Irish language because we have our own script historically. It's not the same script as the script used for English. Uh, and she funded that, uh, again, of course, with the reforming purpose in mind. Uh, she also had a primer written for her uh, by one of the Irish nobility, Anglo-Irish Anglo nobility, um, Christopher Nugent, if I remember correctly. Uh, and she was uh, fond, I believe, of speaking to diplomats and visitors to her court uh, uh, or addressing them at least with a few words in their language. Uh, so uh, likewise, James I, who succeeded her, uh, wished Trinity College very much to engage with this issue and to produce uh, graduates who could minister to the Irish in their own language. Um, but the, the, the stronger voice seems, seems to have been one which treated Irish as suspicion uh, and which saw uh, unity of language as being essential for unity in in, in political allegiance. Uh, and that argument won out on the whole in the 17th century, but there were always dissenting voices. And uh, one remarkable man was William Bedell, who was Bishop of Kilmore, Provost of Trinity College in the 1620s period, uh, and who uh, sponsored the publication of the translation of the Old Testament into Irish, for example, and indeed another one work that I can think of. So, you know, there were always, it, it's, there were always people who, 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 who took a different view. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there's no doubt that there were fault lines which persisted on into the, into the present day. Thank you, Mio. You, you mentioned the Northern Ireland Place Name Project, of which you're now director, and with which you've been involved, as you say, for a long time. What's been the greatest challenge that you and colleagues have faced in terms of that important project? Um, well, to be honest, Richard, I would say that we have had... Um, less by way of challenge and more by way of um, uh, success, I think, in, in appealing to people uh, on the basis of shared space and therefore shared languages. So our local place names, Ulster place names, uh, the greater number, the further back we go in time, are of Irish language origin. But we also have names of English language origin going right back to the 12th and 13th centuries. This can surprise people because they associate uh, English in Ulster with the post-plantation period in the 17th century. But we had English settlers in East Ulster going right back to the initial conquest in the, at the end of the 12th century, uh, especially in the Ards Peninsula and County Down and stretching on up on the East Coast to Coleraine. So, so, uh, so we have English names of greater antiquity than perhaps people think. Uh, and we have names also coined in the Scots language. Uh, so you know, we, the, the facts on the ground are that we have a trilingual situation with a little bit of evidence for the occasional name which derives from French or Latin, but not much. Uh, so uh, that hasn't been a challenge to sell to people, is what I would say to you, in that when you put it in those terms to people and when you show, when you show them the complexity of that, uh, they are interested in it. So if you take a place like Ballywalter, which is well known as a, you know, as a, as a seaside resort in the Irish Peninsula, and uh, one would think rightly, that that has a classic Irish place name element, Bally, which means settlement, later came to mean town, village in the Irish language, uh, originally meant farmstead or homestead. Uh, but that originated as Walter's Toon, Toon be the earlier form of town in English. 
so it was a settlement which was associated with an Anglo-Norman called Walter. We're not quite sure whom. Uh, and his name was given to the settlement. Uh, and as the people became bilingual, the name passed from English into Irish. And part of it was translated and the other part remained as Walter. So Walter's tomb became Bally Walcher. And then re-emerged again in the 17th century, but by which time nobody remembered it as an English name. So it appeared in the 17th century simply in an English spelling, Bally Walter. So what is that name? It's certainly an Irish name, in that it's a name in the Irish landscape or in the Ulster landscape, if one prefers. Uh, but it's, an, it's a name which has an Irish form, from which it derives, Bally Walcher. But it has an English uh, origin. Uh, so... There you are looking at a situation where a name switches from English to Irish and back into an English form again, which is not the original English form, but now a different English form in a new circumstance in the 17th century. So you've, you've flows over and back involving these various languages. And when you, when you talk to people in those terms, they are interested in that. And they see that language is not black and white, but actually very complex. And that interests them. So I think that our experience therefore has been that people have enjoy that. Uh, of course, there's another thing entirely to say to somebody, now we're going to put that name up in a sign. <laughs> because we haven't got to that place yet. Uh, and that's a very interesting uh, fact, actually, because um, that touches then on things which are more political and more about uh, perception. Uh, so it's fine to have, uh, to encounter a name uh, and to be told that it has, its meaning is X and that its language of origin is Y, or a mixture of Y and Z, indeed. Uh, but people can feel differently about it in a contested society where that name then is, appears in the public space, not in the virtual space, which is the Northern Ireland Placing Project, but in the public space where it appears in signage and where it then is taken into a different context uh, and becomes bound up with political uh, allegiance, loyalty, perspectives. Um, and that's a challenge. So, But that's not a challenge that we've had to worry about because that's not our purpose. Our purpose is not to put up signage anywhere. Our purpose is simply to tell people what their names mean, how they come into existence, what they involve, uh, what's, in what's interesting about them. Um, so uh, that in a way is beyond our work, but it obviously relates to our work. Uh, and that's, that's more complicated. And would that next stage, if you like, of people's enthusiasm in discovering complexity, would it be a benign sea change if people were able to be comfortable around actual space signage reflecting the complexities which they probably enjoy hearing about. I think at local level probably people like hearing the kinds of things you're describing um, and I accept that it can become sharp-edged and contested when it becomes a, a lobbying issue around signage. On the other hand it does seem to me one possible trajectory for what you've just described is that people feel more comfortable with multiple signage because it's a multiple inheritance that they're actually living in? Or, or is that just a door that this project and this work doesn't really want to go towards? Well, it's, I suppose it's a door that this project hasn't opened particularly because uh, we obviously wanted to keep people on board and we wanted people to understand that this was an academic project housed in the university. And, you know, university is what it is. It's, it's, you know, it's about universal themes and it's about, you know, engaging with things uh, like language in a way that, you know, uh, is familiar from other places and, and it may be of global significance, not just of local significance, because these issues of respect for language and interest in language you know, are not confined to our situation. Uh, so we haven't had to open the door on signage, but that doesn't mean, of course, 
that we don't, uh, that we're not conscious of it. So I am obviously very conscious of it because somebody may come to you and may ask for a form of a name to put in a sign and you know where it's going to end up. Uh, and you know that in certain places that's going to be accepted and it's going to be fine. Other places that cannot happen. Uh, and I do regret personally, uh, to be honest with you, that we, have, that we have a patchwork quilt of signage whereby some areas may have bilingual signage, some areas may have monolingual signage. Some areas are prepared to countenance bilingual signage involving Irish and English, others may countenance bilingual signage involving Irish and Ulster Scots. Um, uh, and there is no, if you like, consensus around the issue. And that's probably not great for our society, or at least it's not desirable. One would rather move to a position of consensus. Um, our closest neighbour is Scotland. Uh, it has a similar linguistic mix. It has English, it has Gaelic, of course they won't call it Irish now, but it was referred to as Irish in the past, but that's another story. Uh, so they have English, Gaelic, and they have Lowland Scots, Scots. Uh, the Gibranic variety, which is closely related to English, but was distinct from it up until the 16th century, especially in Scotland, until the Union of Crowns. Um, and interestingly, they've gone down a bilingual route uh, in, in, in Scotland, in, in public spaces, um, I am a little surprised by that, but I understand why that might have happened, uh, because one would think that that was a context in which, might, in which one might consider at least uh, trilingual signage as a possibility. But they don't seem to have gone there. The issue probably is, in their case, uh, before we get back home here, is that uh, the Scots language, which was originally quite distinct from English, and, was not, and they were not mutually intelligible. So in 16th century Lowland Scotland, a speaker from Edinburgh would not have understood a speaker from London with ease. Uh, um, but because they were related languages to start with, they grew together again in the course of succeeding centuries after the Union of Crowns. So the king moves to London. Uh, the the uh, uh, language becomes more anglicised and uh, by the time we get to Robbie Burns, we can talk about Scots features, but it's not the same Scots as it was in the 16th century. You know? So... The challenge, therefore, in Scotland is that, that it might be hard to distinguish between what would be an English and a Scots form in certain instances. Whereas English and Irish are so different, I mean, there are different linguistic families, uh, that, that, that possibility doesn't arise. So likewise, therefore, in the Northern Ireland context, where we now have um, our moving to position where we have an official status for two of indigenous languages as well as English, um, and that seems as if it may now happen because it's been moved to Westminster, as we know, and it looks as if that will happen, and that will be basically the new decade, new approach in legislation. Um, uh, that raises questions about what might be done here. Uh, on the Scottish model, you might have bilingual signage. On the Republic of Ireland model, you might have bilingual signage, although the two languages involved would be different. Uh, do, might we ever do the same, or countenance doing the same, or might we countenance something trilingual? There has been some piloting of that in this place. So, for example, in Derry-Instraban District Council, they did have trilingual signage uh, in the past in, in, in some of their public buildings. Uh, what surprised me, I have to admit, obviously I'm not, I'm from, from, from further south on this island, but what surprised me in that context was that there was some resistance to that idea from some who might, one might expect to be well disposed towards Ulster Scots, in that they were uncomfortable with the language and signage for them, it was an oral language and not a written one. Uh, and they feared that the language would be uh, subject to ridicule once it appeared in a written form. Uh, and uh, 
That obviously brings in a layer of complexity into our situation here. So what do we do about that? If you were to ask me just as a citizen, not as an academic, just as a citizen, I would have no trouble with a trilingual sign on my street whatsoever. Uh, all I would be concerned about uh, would be that the forms suggested for the signage would be authentic and that they, would, you know, that they wouldn't contain any linguistic horrors or inaccuracies. And that's been perhaps a stuffy linguist, but I can't help that. That's my training. Uh, so, but I wouldn't have any problem personally with trilingual signage, but I think we're a bit off that. Uh, so not only are we off that, but we're also off a consensus on bilingual signage. So for the moment, it's a patchwork quilt. But to answer your question in simple terms, Richard, I think it would be good if there could be a consensus around that. And if that consensus were to be something different from the Irish Republic and Scotland, so be it, in my view. I'm not threatened by that. Uh, I'm an Irish speaker. Uh, I would like to see um, the Irish language valued and respected. That's what I spent all my life trying to encourage people to do. But I would wish the same for, for, for the Scots tradition. I don't have any problem with that. And I'm extremely conscious, being in Belfast, of our very, very strong links with Scotland. In my case, they happen to be the links between Irish and Scottish Gaelic. Uh, for somebody else, it might be a link between Ulster Scots and Lowland Scots in Scotland itself. All of that is fine. Uh, um, but if we could move to a position of respect and if we could find a means of uh, dealing with that in the public space, it would be undoubtedly a positive thing. Thanks very much, Michal. I mean, you mentioned there the university context for your work and also much of what you've been talking about in relation to the Place Name Project has an educative quality to it. I, I know that you're very passionate about the, in addition to the research, the educational aspect of your work and the teaching and the engagement with students. Could you say something about your work as a linguist, as a linguistic expert in relation to teaching, in relation to the next generation, in relation to students and their experience of the kind of things that you engage with? Yes, um, well, I've been uh, here for 34 years and uh, I've taught for most of that time. Uh, our students come from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, some come from Irish medium education, some come from mainstream English medium education, but where one can do an A-level in Irish. Some come from access courses. Uh, thankfully, we also had some come from non-traditional, let's put it like that, backgrounds. People have been able to study Irish later in life, and that includes very much they have people from the unionist community. So uh, for me, therefore, as a teacher, the key thing is uh, for Irish and Celtic Studies at Queen's to be an open space where people can encounter this language uh, and uh, can come to know something of it that is firmly based in, 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 in fact and in, in, and in scholarship uh, and in, in cutting-edge research, and uh, that's really important. It's also very important that students in coming to us will also understand that um, Irish has, you know, close relationships with other languages, uh, and that includes in this Irish-British context very much with, with, with Scotland and Wales, obviously. Um, and that encountering that, you know, that, that they see that language is, you know, a very broad quilt, uh, and that it can embrace all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, whether they be political or religious. Uh, and therefore that their third level education in this language and in, and, and in its associated culture and literature uh, is something that opens the mind, you know, uh, and uh, also, I think, engenders a respect in languages more generally because, you know, it's not just about us either. I mean, our particular interest is Irish, but we are. I think when you're interested in one language and when you learn one language, you become interested in others naturally as a matter of course. So all of those things are important. Uh, the sorts of things we teach uh, 
have needed to change over that period. It's, I suppose 34 years is not an insignificant amount of time <laughs> in a person's life. Uh, in the, uh, the biggest turn I've seen in our discipline has been uh, the sociolinguistic turn, by which I mean you know, the connection between language and society has grown in importance. This is work that initiated, was initiated in the English-speaking world by eminent people such as Lebov in New York and, and others uh, uh, in the 60s. Uh, but in the Celtic languages, it's something that wasn't available to me as a student in my day, and that was in the 80s. It's something that came to, fore, came to the fore more in, in the 1990s, and especially from about the year 2000. And uh, it's primary concern of it, about the relationship between language and society, but in the case of minoritized and, and languages which are threatened with extinction, and we mustn't forget that, that these are vulnerable languages. Uh, it's very concerned with, with, with obviously, revitalization and regeneration and planning for the future. So that has become an increasing element of what we do, uh, we have to cover a broad curriculum, but that, that is probably the, the, the newest dimension to what we teach uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, the response to that, because people in our community want to know about these things. And it's, it's important to have the best of international practice to see what's going on in other places where they have minoritized and endangered languages. France is a good example. Spain is another. Um, uh, so, uh, and not to mention, of course, Britain as well. But France and Spain and the, and the European uh, mainland uh, there, a lot has been going on there in that regard, uh, uh, which we've been able to tap into. So uh, that's something that students who leave us in Queens don't all go teaching. I mean, you know, lots of people might think that you're training teachers to a large degree, but 50% or more of our students don't go into education. They go into other things entirely. Some go into the media, uh, some go into the civil service, some go into um, increasingly ventures which involve the use of the language, whether it be uh, a, a language hub, and there's one, for example, in West Belfast on Cultureland, and there's another in uh, just after opening in Armagh over the last two years in Mass City, and there's one, of course, in, in Derry. Uh, so some go working in that sector. So there are all sorts of things they do, but they need to know about this type of stuff in order to do it. So um, that's probably been the biggest change in terms of how we have uh, approached our teaching and our curriculum over the last number of years. Michal, it's been great hearing about your ideas, your expertise your research, your teaching, your interests and your wise judgments. For this podcast conversation today, I'm very grateful to my colleague, Professor Michal Emanion. Thank you. Thank you.